Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. And we're going to read this chapter in its entirety. Hebrews chapter 7. This is, uh, we're going to look at this entire chapter. I know it's, it's uh, going to be, it's a longer piece of uh, scripture than we normally take. But the author is sort of giving an argument here to his readers. And I wanted us to be able to see that in its entirety rather than breaking it up into pieces. So give attention now to God's word. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Uh, having neither the beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priest, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered him up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could come this morning and stand before your word. It's Some passages are, are much more challenging than others to understand. And uh, we just pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would do a, a work in, in our hearts to, to believe and, and come to trust you more so, Jesus, as we ought for, for who you are. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I'm sure as you were getting up this morning, getting ready for church, you were thinking, you know, I just can't wait to get to church and hear about this guy that the Bible only talks about a couple of times called Melchizedek that lived thousands of years ago and that I really have no idea what this has to do with us today. You know, uh, as you are dealing with your your struggles and your problems and your issues of life, you might think, why in the world... Would anybody be interested in learning about some obscure figure in, in the Bible? But the Lord has put this here for a reason, and, and it's really important. And, and I think, first of all, we have to understand the context in which the writer is giving this to his readers. Um, of course, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned this every sermon since I've started preaching through Hebrews. But you know that these are Christians who are tempted to abandon their faith, that they have been persecuted and they have struggled. And so most likely they are thinking things like this. Hey, you know, we didn't have it so bad as a Jew. You know, the Jewish religion is a good system. You know, it sort of spells out how you're supposed to live. The rituals were very familiar and, and satisfying. It's a faith that has been with our forefathers for hundreds of years. Uh, we would still be worshiping God. Maybe we should just go back to the ways in which we used to worship. But I appreciate what John MacArthur says about this chapter. He said, the key to the Christian life is really the idea of drawing near to God. And, and you actually see that in a number of times in this chapter, in verses 19 and, and verses 25, that idea of drawing near to God. Um, for the Christian, the fullest expression of faith is, is to enter into the presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies to fellowship with him. Now, that's not usually how we express it when we say it. We usually talk about going to heaven. But the joy of going to heaven is God is there. 
Now, I know that in the church today, I think that the, the focus has shifted, unfortunately, towards other things. You hear people now talking about wanting to go to heaven because I can see Uncle Fred or Aunt Sally or, or whoever has gone there before me. Or I can't wait to go to heaven because I'm just so tired of living in this fallen world and all the struggles that I have with sin. Or, or, or maybe I just can't wait to get to heaven because... My body is just rattled with, with, with sickness and disease and I can't wait to have a new body. And all those things are part of what it means to go to heaven. But the real focus of going to heaven is that God is there. And, and I, I've been so challenged by the Puritans that I've been reading and how they've talked about Christian. You know, what makes you think that if you don't have much of a love for the Lord here, that when you go to heaven, all of a sudden you'll have this great love for him. That really, you know, our, our time here on earth is a time where we can learn to grow and to love God more and more and more and more. And that when we get to heaven, it's like a full expression of that love. I think about uh, the summer that Robbie and I were separated from one another uh, before we, the summer before we got married. And we were writing letters back and forth to each other. She did a better job of writing than I did. But I would go to the mailbox every day with bated breath, just looking to see if I got a letter from her. And I would just spend so much time reading over and pouring over that letter and just looking at every word and rereading it and just loving it so much. But, but it was more than just enjoying the letters. It was loving this woman who would be my future wife. And, and not only that, but uh, I was looking forward to the day when we would be reunited. Even though we had to work in separate states and be far apart, I was looking for that, forward to that time when we could be together. And it's like that with God. It's that sense of, of drawing near to Him. And, and Paul talks about that in his letter to the Ephesians. He, he says, uh, just talking about the essence of the spiritually filled fulfilled Christian life, he said in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in the love that God has for you, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And MacArthur points out and he said, that's Christianity, the fullness of God, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And that's a basis of, of, a, of the goal of the gospel, that we will know Christ and we will love him. And, and I think in some ways, to some extent, that is the goal of every religion um, but Christianity, obviously, is, is the right way. But, but even the Jews knew that more than anybody else, that if they were going to approach God, let alone be near to him, that they were in desperate need of a high priest. And, and you know, they couldn't just waltz into the Holy of Holies. They couldn't just rip back the curtain of the Holy of Holies and say, Hey, God, I'm here. Let's have fellowship. They knew that they would be struck dead, that they needed a priest who would go and would minister on their behalf to sprinkle the blood 
for their sins. And so the point that the author is trying to make in this chapter is, is that Jesus is not only our high priest, but he is a greater high priest. He's not a high priest like the priests of the Levitical system. He is a different high priest, one after the order of Melchizedek. And so he goes through and he makes an argument to prove his case. And he does that in several points. The first point being is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Okay, kids, that word type, it means he's like a picture of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. If, if you remember the story in the Old Testament where, where Moses picked up a, a, a stick um, with a snake on it when the people were sick. And he told the people, if you look at this, you will be healed. You'll be saved. You won't die. Well, that, that uh, serpent on a stick was a type. It was a picture of what Christ would do many years later when he was raised up on the cross of Jesus. Or he was raised up on the cross as Jesus Christ, our Savior, to save us from our sins. And any who look to Jesus will not just be made physically well, but they will spiritually become new creatures in Christ. So that's what a type is. And he's saying here that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now, it's interesting because Melchizedek is only mentioned just a couple of places in the Bible. The first of which is Genesis chapter 14, and, and that's sort of a, a historical text. It tells us about who he is historically, that he comes and, and he encounters Abraham, and, and it gives just a brief description in that chapter of what that interaction was like. But then it's mentioned one other time in sort of a prophetic sense in the Psalms as David is, is um, speaking about the coming Messiah, and he says that the Messiah is one who will come after the order of Melchizedek. And then the third place that we see Melchizedek talked about is in Hebrews. And specifically here in Hebrews chapter 7, which is a theological treatment of, of, uh, of him. And so, but if you look back at Genesis 14, you, you see that Abraham had gone after four kings that had taken his nephew Lot. And so Abraham went after him to rescue him and the others who had been taken. And so he did, and Abraham had overwhelmed these kings, and he not only got all of his people back, but he also, of course, got the spoils of war. And after, as Abraham is returning from battle, he encounters this man named Melchizedek, who came out to meet him. Melchizedek was a king of Salem, which, according to Psalm 76-2, was most likely Jerusalem. And, and yet, he was not only a king, but he was a priest as well. And so Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then Abraham paid a tithe out of the spoils to him. And then out of that short account, then the writer to the Hebrews uh, draws out a bunch of amazing parallels between Melchizedek and Christ. And I just want to mention four to you this morning. The first thing to note is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his personhood. We see that in verses 1 and 2, that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest at the same time. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but in Israel, that was not allowed to be the case. You had the office of a prophet, you had the office of a priest, and you had the office of a king. And those three were, were separate. But the author makes a point that Melchizedek was, first of all, by translation of his name, was a, a king of righteousness. Um, and then also 
uh, a king of Salem, which Salem means peace. And so we see here that sense of righteousness and peace. And we know that Christ, as John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, that Christ is righteous. And not only that, but through Christ comes our peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And, and, and so a, a king cannot have true peace in his kingdom unless he, both he and his kingdom are righteous. Because we know that it's through sin that discord and strife come. But righteousness is that, that foundation for peace. But So anyway, we see that in his personhood. The second thing to note is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ in the origin and the duration of his priesthood in verse 3 of Hebrews 7. Uh, being a priest in Israel was totally dependent upon your family lineage. I mean, you, you had to be from the right family to be a priest. All priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. And if you could not establish your family heritage, you were excluded from the priesthood. And we actually see an example of that in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 61. Whereas the, the Israelites had been in exile, of course, not all the, the documents survived. And so it would be like you sort of uh, losing your birth certificate and then having to go in somewhere and prove that you are who you say you are. And you're like, well, show me your paperwork. And you're like, I don't have my paperwork. It was destroyed in a fire. It was lost or whatever. And so these men came and said, we are from the tribe of Levi. And we are from the priestly line. And they said, show me your, your lineage, your, your genealogy. And they said, we can't. And they said, then therefore you are considered unclean and you cannot serve as, as priests. But Melchizedek was, as it says here in Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy. Yet he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, some people have taken this to mean that because Melchizedek had sort of a lack of genealogy, and especially as it goes on and it says, neither beginning of days nor end of days, that Melchizedek was superhuman. He was either an angel or maybe he was pre-incarnate Christ, uh, but regardless, he wasn't just a man. But, but I would agree with, with most commentators that that is probably going farther than what the text says, that the author of Hebrews is, is really seeking to build an argument from sort of silence in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book about genealogies. It's a book about so-and-so was born on this day, lived so many years, and he died on this day. And, and so what they're trying to show is, is in the midst of all this kind of rhythm of the book of Genesis, shows up this man who has no genealogy, no beginning, and, and we don't know where he ends. And the author is saying that the Holy Spirit deliberately omitted these facts from the book that, to emphasize that Melchizedek is a type of Christ who really does have no beginning and no end. And it says here that he was made like the Son of God. Well, Jesus' human lineage obviously is given in Scripture, and he did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah, and so uh, he could not have been a Levitical priest. And so, as we'll see later on in verse 14, so that's why he is a priest after the tribe of Melchizedek. The third thing that we note is, is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ 
in that he's greater than Abraham and, and Levi. Uh, Melchizedek was greater than both Abraham and Levi since he received tithes from both of these men. Now, if you're an astute Bible scholar, you'll say, now, wait a minute. How can he receive tithes from Levi? Levi wasn't even born yet. Uh, actually, as, as you look at this, you, you realize that Levi is the great-grandson of, of Abraham. But um, the author is making the argument in verses 4 and 5 here that um, Abraham, when he gives this tithe to uh, Melchizedek uh, in the same way because Levi was in his loins, as it says in the text, because the Hebrews thought that an ancestor contained in him all his descendants. And, and we see sort of this idea uh, even in, in Romans 5, as Paul talks about that in Adam. You know, Adam sinned, and so therefore, because Adam sinned, who sinned? Everyone. Everyone. All of his descendants sinned as well. And so there was sort of that idea. And he says, because Abraham gave the tithe to um, Melchizedek, Levi did as well. And in doing so, they were acknowledging that Levi, or, or excuse me, that Melchizedek was a man of God and he was greater than Abraham and Levi. The fourth thing is to notice that Melchizedek is a type of Christ in that he blesses Abraham. Uh, you would think, because God has come to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, that that Abraham would come and bless Melchizedek. But instead, the opposite happens. Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. And then it goes on in the text in verses 6 and 7 and talks about how the lesser is blessed by the greater, that Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, blesses him. So we see that Christ is, or that Melchizedek is a, is a type of Jesus Christ. But he goes on in verses 11 through 19 of chapter 7, and he talks how, because of that, Christ is a better hope. He, he is our hope in drawing people to God. Um, because the law and the Levitical priest were inferior because they couldn't make anyone perfect, as we see in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, implying that it was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Um, so, as the author begins with the inability of the law to render God's people perfect, um, now, when he talks about being perfect, he doesn't mean that we're without flaw or defect, okay? That's not what he means. Rather, he's talking about the condition in which someone is acceptable to God. Um, to put someone in a position in which he can come or stand before God. The, the Levitical priesthood could not make it such that we were acceptable before God. Um, even though the purpose of the priesthood, priesthood was to reconcile men to God through sacrifices for their sins, uh, the Levitical priesthood could not bring people near to God because their sins were not fully and finally cleansed. So they had no freedom from their sins. The priests, through the sacrifices, could only show a picture or typify what redemption looked like. 
and there wasn't a taking away of sins. And as we'll see in Hebrews later on, that's why the sacrifices had to be made over and over and over and over again. So therefore, the priests um, um, were imperfect in their ability to give people full access to God. And it was in the midst of this Levitical priesthood that's imperfect that David says, even though the priesthood had been going on for, what, 500 years, uh, David prophesied and he said, when the Messiah comes, he will be a priest not after the order of the Levites or the Aaronic priest that you see, but actually he'll be a different kind of priest. He'll be a priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. And so we see in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7 that it was necessary for the priesthood to change. Because if, if the Levitical priesthood could not help anyone become closer to God, something had to change. It says in verse 12, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessary a change in the law as well. Now, change means to put one thing in place of another. That's what the idea of this word means. So Christianity doesn't merely come from Judaism, but it replaces it. And so even if these Jews were thinking, we'll just go back and worship as a Jew because we'll worship Yahweh, we'll worship the same God, that's not true. Because they were only worshiping God as they understood him from the Old Testament. But from the New Testament, we see that God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christianity doesn't just sort of flow out of Judaism. It actually replaces it as, as something different. And because the Aaronic priesthood and the Mosaic law were so closely tied to one another, if you had a change in priesthood, then it meant that the law was also had to change as well. Now, as you hear that word law, you may think of Ten Commandments. That, that's what we just read, right, kids? The Ten Commandments. But there's so much more to the law. There's the, the civil law. Those are the laws that the Israelites uh, um, it, um, adhered to that God had given them things like you know put a barrier around the roof of your house because they had flat roofs and people would go up on top of their houses and you didn't want anybody to fall off so there were laws like that that Israel was to obey there's also the moral law which is like the Ten Commandments and then there is the ceremonial law as well which is the sacrifices and stuff and we see from from Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, on the Sermon on the Mount, that the moral law still applies today. He says, you know, you, you talk about divorce and marriage. Let me tell you what the law really says about that. You talk about not killing someone. Well, let's talk about anger as well. And let me teach you what the law really says about that. And Jesus sort of ups our understanding and takes the blinders off to help us to see truly what the moral law meant. And Jesus said, that still applies today. But then he goes on and he said that, that he came to fulfill the law. And in that regards, he was talking about the ceremonial law. So when he says that there's a new priest and there, therefore there has to be a new law, he's talking about all the ceremonial law, all the sacrifices, uh, the whole Jude, uh, Judaistic system was changed, replaced by new priests, new sacrifice, and a new covenant. And so the order of Melchizedek represents this new order of, of priesthood, as he talks about in verses 13 through 14. So Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. 
but from Judah. And so Jesus, as a priest, had to be born from a different priesthood than that of the Aaronic priesthood. Because Jesus, you know, um, wasn't along those fam family lines. So he was a different priest, but Jesus um, was a superior priest. He was uh, the perfection of the new priesthood. And look in verses 15 and 17. He said, This became even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You see, the qualifications for being a Levitical priest were all external. It was the family lineage that you came from. It was whether you were free from a number of physical defects, as you see in Leviticus 21. Even the ceremony that they used uh, to institute these priests involved uh, clothing them with priestly garments, purifying them with water and with offerings, all external things. You can read that in Exodus 29. But with Jesus, he became a priest like Melchizedek based on something internal, namely the power of an indestructible life. The power of an indestructible life. Now, we talked earlier about the, mystery, uh, the silence of Genesis in terms of uh, talking about Melchizedek as either neither having been beginning of days nor the end of days. But we see that this is a foreshadowing of Christ who is John describes him, in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And although he died for our sins, the grave could not hold him. He is risen and lives as our priest forever. Nothing can remove him from that office. As long as he is in heaven, which is forever, he, we have access to God through him. So he is that perfect priest. But because that perfect priest has come... Then we see in verses 18 and 19 that the Levitical priesthood now must be set aside. Uh, verse 18 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In one sense, this is sort of the climax of the text. He's sort of saying Aaron, or the Aaronic priesthood, is replaced by Christ. Uh, God has set aside, he has done away with something that has been established for centuries, uh, the whole sacrificial system. And, and we see sort of that, that exclamation mark in terms of God saying, yes, we're going to take that away when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 and the sacrificial system ceased to exist or to be practiced. Because the old system could reveal sin and, and it could cover sin in a certain way and to a temporary degree, but it could never remove sin. And so God himself removes that. So we see here that, that, that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, that there is new hope because we have a greater high priest that's coming. And that great, greater high priest we see in the third point uh, guarantees salvation. We see that salvation is guaranteed. Um, now, if you, if you look back to Genesis chapter 6, what we just got done reading last week, we see that God had given an oath and a promise to his people that I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and he says, in essence, 
I will fulfill that promise in Jesus Christ. When he, when Christ comes and he lives, uh, then and he dies and he accomplishes his work, my, <coughs> excuse me, my promises are done. They're they're fixed in place. And and then in verse twenty, he sort of returns to that argument that he's been arguing for a better hope. And he says in verse twenty that that better hope was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So since Jesus Christ is superior to all things, and since God's promises stands and falls based upon the person and the work of Christ, then Christ's priesthood is eternal, grounded on God's authority and, and his promises. But with the priests, no such promise was ever made with the Levitical priesthood. There were many Israelites, I'm sure, who thought that the Aaronic priesthood would be permanent. It would last forever. But there was nothing in the scripture that really says that. But, but in God's word, it says very clearly over and over that God makes an oath. He makes a covenant. He makes a promise with his people that he that he guarantees and Jesus is the guarantor of that better covenant. He's not merely he does not merely mediate the covenant, but Jesus also guarantees it by offering himself on the cross for our sins. And so all of God's promises are guaranteed to us by Jesus himself. But but Jesus is is not only uh, the guarantor, but he's also eternal. And verses 23 through 25, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There's one thing that could have ended and, or disqualified a priest from the priesthood. I mean, other than the fact that they only could do it through a certain age. But there was something that definitely took away the permanent ministry of a priesthood and that is death that they would die one day that they would not live forever but Jesus on the other hand because he continues forever he holds the priesthood permanently now when it says here that he holds the priesthood permanently it doesn't simply refer to something that will not change okay when we talk about something that's permanent we're talking about something that we think will not change but change is very much a part of a fallen world and much a part of our existence. But with God, there's, a, there's another level. Not only will it not change, but it cannot be changed. Do you see the difference there? Not only will it not change, but it cannot be changed. There's nothing that can change Jesus' priesthood. And that's sort of challenging sometimes for us to comprehend as we think about these things. Because of, uh, because of the way that we view things. And then he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a wonderful verse. I, I love what John MacArthur said. He says, This is like John 3.16. It contains the whole essence of the gospel in one verse. 
And uh, it would be worth it just to preach on this one verse. There's just so much that is there. But even within just this one verse, we see so much about the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. We see the basis of, of his salvation. It's his eternality. Jesus can save forever because he exists forever and he ministers forever. And the nature of his salvation, that he is bringing people to draw near to God uh, because he has delivered them from their sin. And so we can have that relationship with God. We can grow in that relationship with God because of what Christ has done. But he has the power of salvation as well. It says that Jesus is able. The Old Testament priests were never able to save anyone. But Jesus is able to save us. And he talks about the objects of salvation, those who come to him to be saved, those who draw near to God, those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out, as the New Testament says. And then, of course, the security uh, of salvation, Jesus' perpetual intercession or his prayers for us. We can no more keep ourselves then we can save ourselves in the first place. But Jesus has the power to save us, but he also has the power to keep us. Constantly, eternally, perpetually, Jesus Christ intercedes for us before the Father. And I think this is a point where we need to stop as Christians and think about this. You know, it may be that you are here today and, and you have been struggling in, in your faith. Maybe you've been struggling with sin. And maybe you've been struggling with guilt and you think, Lord, how can I continue on? I feel like such a hypocrite in the way that I live, the things that I do, the words that I speak, the attitudes that I have. And, and sometimes I just wonder whether I truly am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I want you to understand that in Christ, our salvation is complete. And if we look to him, if we turn to him, all of his promises are true. The things that you may feel, the things that you may be tempted to think, all those things are, in one sense, negated by his promises. You can stand firm on those promises and you can know that they are true. You know, it's almost like, you know, uh, whenever we sin, it's like Jesus turns to the Father and he said, you know, put that on my account. I've already paid for it anyway. Just go ahead and put that on my account. Because it's been, it's already been paid for. And then finally, we see that Jesus is, is holy and sinless. In verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He who has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. You see, all the Levitical priests were sinners and they struggled with sin. And so they, before they could offer sacrifices for God's people, had to go first of all and offer sacrifices for their own sins. But not so with Jesus. He is holy. You know, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are counted righteous. I've appreciated that in the Sunday school class that the adults have been doing that, that distinction about, you know, the, the judicialness of the acts of God. 
that, you know, we are not righteous in his sight. We still struggle with sin. That's why we come on Sunday mornings and we have a confession of sin as part of our order of worship because we still struggle with sin. But we are counted righteous in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ himself is righteous. He's not counted righteous. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. And so Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself, but he can offer himself as a sacrifice for us so that we would be saved once for all. I don't know if you've ever in the mail gotten a letter. I'm sure you probably have where it's some kind of promotional type letter that promises you all these big things. You know, you can save all this money or, you know, surely you've won this this great prize. All you have to do is call this 1-800 number to claim your, your prize and all that kind of stuff. And and you look at it and at first glance you think, wow, this is really great. It's just so funny as an adult to watch my teenage kids get these letters and they're like, wow, this is like awesome. And you're like, OK, guys, read the fine print. And what does the fine print say? You know, things like, well, actually results may vary or amounts used in this letter are for illustration purposes only. Actual earnings may be much less. You know, it may be those kind of things. And as a matter of fact, as adults, we've gotten so skeptical about those things, we don't even open them up anymore. We just throw them away, right? We can recognize them from the envelope and we're just like, yeah, that's, that's no good. Well, those statements are greatly limited um, the, the promises that are made in those letters are limited by the fine print. But pro- God promises that because Jesus is our greater, superior high priest, the salvation is guaranteed for all those who draw near to God through him. The beautiful thing about God is there's no fine print. There's nothing that says, sinner, you got to clean up your life first. You got to start going to church. You got to start being nicer to people. You got to start doing all these things. And if you do all these things, then I'll accept you. It doesn't say, you know, the offer does not apply to really, 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 really bad sinners or to people who have done really, really, really awful things. Jesus promises that the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And that's a promise that he brings to us today. That if we will trust him, that he guarantees salvation for all eternity if you will come to him. Let's bow our heads. This morning. Heavenly Father, we may come this morning and we're most likely not going to return to Judaism or some former religion that we once believed. But God, we are tempted every day to really question the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Lord, oftentimes our emotions and our, our feelings, the, the thoughts that Satan plants in our heads or that their flesh raises up, uh, causes us question and doubt about our standing before you. And we really question whether someone as bad as ourselves could truly be drawn near to God. But I pray this morning that, that through this sermon, even though there's a lot of stuff here, a lot of nuances that we didn't even get to talk about this morning, that we would see that Christ is truly a sufficient high priest and that he intercedes on behalf of us to draw us ever closer to you, to love you, to walk in fellowship with you. And so, Lord, 
I, I pray that you would encourage us as a body uh, to delight in what Christ has done and to trust in that, to turn from our sin and to turn from our self-sufficiency. And Lord, to rest in you, to rejoice. May, may the truth of Christ as our high priest fuel our worship, O oh God. And may we with great anticipation, just like my anticipation of the letters and, and getting to see my wife, my future wife soon, uh, may we have even greater anticipation as we look forward to seeing our Savior one day and to rejoice in him. We thank you, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.